Hello and welcome to Military History Inside Out, where we talk about military history from ancient to modern and everything in between. I'm Chris Alvarez and today's guest is Garth Ennis, who's written a graphic novel about a specific aviation arm in the Royal Navy during World War II. Thank you for listening. I'm speaking with Garth Ennis, author of The String Bags, uh, published or to be published May 20th, 2020 by Naval Institute Press. Um, I think that date still stands. Thank you for speaking with me. Oh, pleasure. I know uh, a lot of people will know your name uh, for your comic book writing. Um, personally, I, I know you for The Preacher, um, but you've mm -hmm. also written a lot of uh, military um, history comic books. Um, That's right. I've, I've written a lot of war comics, uh, uh, more and more as time goes by, really. Mm -hmm. uh, very much a reflection of the kind of comics I, I grew up on um, that I was reading while... It seems almost uh, everyone else who's ended up in the business was reading superheroes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I want to ask, how did your interest in military history start, um, and and why did you decide to write on it? Well, I think it grew out of war comics um, that, uh, that I read as a kid. As I say, um, that's what I was reading when other people were uh, were reading more traditional comics there. It, it really comes down to a quirk of distribution in the part of Northern Ireland I grew up in, mm. where we got very few, uh, very few international imports, um, very few American comics, um, very few British independent titles. We really just got the British mainstream titles. Mm. Uh, so, uh, whereas, uh, friends of mine who lived in Belfast were able to get a, a lot more uh, a lot more American comics. I saw very, very few. And the, the, the British titles I read were 2000 AD, which is most famous for, for featuring Judge Dredd, uh, and um, a series of war comics titles, uh, which were still pretty popular in the 70s and early 80s. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it was, it was reading those and reading stories uh, where I was, even as a kid, dimly aware that were based on reality, based on things that people had actually done, put the hook in me in a way that fantasy didn't, or perhaps uh, perhaps they've endured. Uh, that, that notion of, of stories based in the real world has, has endured with me better than, than the fantasy stories I read as a kid. And so that led me to an understanding, uh, well, sorry, once I, once I achieved the understanding that Yes, these things had happened that allowing for the sometimes outrageous hyperbole of the, the war comics mm -hmm. um, that they were based on on real things, real events, real people. Mm -hmm. uh, that's what led me into an interest in military history. Mm -hmm. And eventually, um, when I was writing my own comics, uh, when I got the opportunity, I uh, I wanted to bring the whole thing full circle and, and start doing my own war comics. Mm -hmm. Now, was World War II your primary military history interest, or did it range? Um, it was the primary interest, really. Um, I, I, have, I am interested in, in other 20th century conflicts. Um, First World War, Korea, and Vietnam. Um, quite early on, I, I did develop an interest in the Vietnam War, again, oddly enough, from a strip I read in a British comic. Mm -hmm. um, but really, the bulk of the comics I read were based on World War II stories, uh, and that's pretty much how I've ended up. I, I, do, uh, I, I do vary it a little bit. I have written about other conflicts, um, quite a bit about Vietnam, actually. Mm -hmm. But yes, the bulk of the work I do is uh, is based around World War Two. So, since your work is often uh, sometimes described as like gritty, you know, even your sort of fantastic superhero stuff, do you think your interest in military history did it start out, you know, just as a kid, you're interested in the action of it, and then did it become more mature, or how did that, how did your interest develop over time? I think uh, if there is a darker or grittier side to my work, I think it comes from British comics in general rather than being specific to war comics. Mm. Um, in terms of what was allowed to be shown 
Uh, British comics of the 70s were, were that bit nearer the knuckle um, than their American counterparts. Um, I think it was the, the what's been called the British invasion uh, of people like Alan Moore and so on in the 80s that really brought that sensibility to American comics. Before that, you, you didn't really see it. Mm. Um so I would say it's the comics I read as a whole, and perhaps also the TV shows I watched and some of the movies I saw mm-hmm. that, that fed into what you're talking about rather than anything specific to, to war stories. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about the string bags then. Um, mm-hmm. Considering how many different stories there are in World War II that could be told, how did this one rise up from, from what was available to you? Yeah. Um, for the past... 20 years, I suppose, for the bulk of my career, I've been working my way through um, the war stories that interest me the most, and I always knew I was going to write something about the swordfish crew, the the British torpedo bomber pilots, Mm -hmm. Um, and this isn't going to be a particularly brilliant answer, but it was just their turn. (laughs) Um, Circumstances uh, conspired. I had a publisher who was very sympathetic with, with Dead Reckoning, the uh, imprint of the Naval Institute Press. Mm-hmm. I had just the right artist in Pete Day Holden. My schedule was at the right point. And I thought, okay, there's a number of them. I want to write about them most. Mm-hmm. Given so, the schedule, I thought it would mm-hmm. finish story. So obviously this this uh, naval air, Royal Naval Air Arm. Well, first I want to ask, I guess, obviously, you focused on the British one. Was there any interest in um, looking at swordfish operations from other countries? A few other navies had them as well, or or did you just want to stick to the British? Uh, No, it was really just uh, my interest in the British Navy's exploits. Um, That, I think, that is where the the swordfish story is is at its most epic. Mm -hmm. When you consider Toronto, the Bismarck, the Channel Dock, I don't think there's anything else in the swordfish story that comes anywhere near matching that. That's not to say that uh, the British in particular didn't do a lot of other very important work with the swordfish, mining, uh, rocket attacks against shipping, and so on. But I think it's those three that that epitomize the swordfish story um, better than anything else. This, This little canvas-skinned, flimsy-looking biplane uh, that somehow achieves the, the near impossible in the face of terrible odds. Mm-hmm. Now, did you take their three most uh, memorable exploits to focus on, or how, how did you make the choice? Well, that's exactly what I did with Toronto and the Bismarck and uh, the Channel Dash. I, I thought you had a, a good arc uh, where we, we begin with the untried aircraft and their untried crews. Um, obviously, I don't want to give away too much for the story for anyone who hasn't read it, but right. um, the, we begin with this midnight attack on the Italian fleet at harbour. Um, we then see uh, the crews uh, taking on the massive German battleship Bismarck mm-hmm. in mid-Atlantic when it looks as if um, she's going to get clean away. Uh, and then we come to the, the climax of the story in the Channel Dash as the Germans attempt to run three capital ships down the English Channel mm. and the British go all out to stop them and the, the, the swordfish crews get caught up in that particular effort. Um, those were really the, the three events that suggested themselves to me as, as the most crucial. Mm-hmm. Now, I think in the blurb I read that um, whereas the operations you discuss um, are historical, the crew themselves, you, you created fictional characters for that? That's well, correct, yeah. Okay. Um, the, the, three, uh, the three guys in our crew, Archie, Ollie, and Pops, Swordfish had three-man crews, mm-hmm. um, are indeed fictional. There were a couple of reasons for that. One was that no single crew in real life took part in all three actions. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there may have been a little bit of spillover, but there were many swordfish squadrons, uh, many carriers uh, from which they flew, and many theaters in which they saw action. And so it's not surprising mm-hmm. um, 
that there there wasn't there wasn't a single crew that did all all these things. Um, the way I saw it was that the nature of the the events that feature in the story again Toronto, the Bismarck, the, the Channel Dock are are so epic. Uh, they're so grand in scope that they were in danger of overwhelming uh, the characters um, and becoming and turning the story into quite a dry documentary. Mm-hmm. And it seemed to me the only way to do that was to, to come up with three characters uh, with whom we could we could empathize, we could move through the story with them, uh, we could see their highs and lows, their triumphs and tragedies. If I'd if I'd done the book purely as a documentary, um, if I'd shown you what happened in each of the three actions, and perhaps uh, I'd tried to highlight a few of the personalities involved in the story, well, with each successive chapter, you'd have to forget about the people who were in the last one and move on to completely new characters. Mm-hmm. And that's what I mean when I say that I think that the events would have overwhelmed the personalities. By having three fictional but constant characters in the story, um, we, we we will hopefully have a little bit of human interest to focus on, mm-hmm. uh, and that will mean that the events won't become too awe-inspiring, too all-encompassing, mm-hmm. um, and we'll have, hopefully, uh, enough of a human interest to carry to carry the reader through the story. Uh, the other thing, and this is this is a uh, a more minor point, is that. I've always believed in, in all the war stories I've written that there's something perhaps a little unethical about taking real-life characters and giving them the dialogue, mm. um, <laughs> the beliefs and the attitudes that you want them to have for your story. Mm. They may not have ever held or expressed opinions like the ones you're putting in their mouths at all. Mm. Um uh, I wrote a story a couple of years ago called Dreaming Eagles about the Tuskegee Airmen, and I did the same thing there. I created fictional characters uh, who, who I then moved through a, a more or less uh, real-life story because, again, I didn't want to put my dialogue, my opinions, my attitudes in the mouths of people who really existed. I, I feel as if there'd be an element of disrespect there. Mm-hmm. And again, fictional characters will help with that. I'm speaking with Garth Ennis, author of the graphic novel, The String Bags. You can find him by Googling his name, Garth Ennis, to find his other works. If you like this podcast, please take a moment to rate it on whatever podcast feed you're listening to it on. These ratings go a long way in increasing the popularity of my podcast, and I'm grateful for any support you can give me. Please sign up for my newsletter at warscholar.org or militaryhistorypodcast.com. Please post your questions or comments about this podcast or this episode on Facebook at War Scholar and on YouTube at War Scholar 1945. You can also contact me on Twitter at War Scholar and on Instagram at Chris Alvarez War Scholar. If you like science fiction, fantasy, and horror, please listen to my podcast Full Contact Nerd located at chrisalvarez.com and fullcontactnerd.com. If you like outer space business, technology, and policy, Please listen to my podcast, Spacewalks Money Talks, also located at spacewalksmoneytalks.com. Now back to the podcast. And um, where the character is drawn, and you don't have to name anyone specifically, but um, where the character is drawn from anyone you came across in doing the research or any kind of uh, personalities that you were familiar with already? Not really. Again, I was anxious to avoid um, my characters even being stand-ins. Mm-hmm. For real people, um, I wanted them. I, I simply wanted them to be a, a an almost generic swordfish crew, uh, rather than being the elite, the very best. Um, simply being three almost every men who happen to to find themselves in that situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, that said, I do occasionally borrow um, instances of real life behaviour and attribute them to my uh, my fictional characters. Um, there is a scene in uh, towards the climax of the book when uh, Ollie, the observer, stands up in his cockpit to make rude gestures and yell abuse at the attacking German fighters. 
even as they're screaming over his head with their uh, injected cannon <laughs> shell casing bouncing off the, the fuselage of the swordfish because that happened in real life. Yeah. Um, to me, that's something that's just too good not to put in. Mm-hmm. Um, likewise, during the attack on the Bismarck, Ollie finds himself leaning over the side of the aircraft, uh, yelling to the pilot uh, the exact moment at which he should let go of the torpedo mm-hmm. um, so that it hits uh, a wave uh, rather than the crest of the wave and just so that it runs true. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, that was done in real life. And that so- is something, by the way, that I acknowledge in the afterword of the book. Mm-hmm. This is real-life behavior with fictional characters carrying it out. Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing uh, I noted, so the operation against the Bismarck, I did an interview about uh, um, the Dam Busters with Max Hastings, and I believe... Right, right. And um, there was there's a, a bit... I'm not sure if it was in his book or or elsewhere I came across this, but that those pilots were worried that they'd have to attack the Bismarck, that their special operation was against the Bismarck, and they were almost relieved that it was something else. So it's interesting that your book um, talks about um, yeah. an attack on the Bismarck. M- might it have been the Turpets? I, I think it might have been the Turpets. Oh, my- by the time 617 Squadron was formed, mm-hmm. The Bismarck had been sunk a couple of years previously. I, I think Swan 7 were a bit worried that they were going to have to use their bombs against the Bismarck sister ship, the Turpets, ah, okay. um, which was uh, tucked away in a Norwegian fjord at the time. Okay. Um, and in fact, interestingly enough, later in the war, they were given different bombs, um, gigantic bunker-busting 12,000-pound bombs, mm-hmm. uh, which they did, in fact, use on the Turpets. Uh, but yes, I'm sure in the, in 1943, with the Bismarck's reputation, uh, the thought of having to attack her sister ship would have been, uh, yes, a bit of a spine-chiller for, for any RAF group. Yeah, yeah no, no problem correcting me there. That's uh, I'm, I'm glad to hear, you know, to get the correct information out. Sure. I mean, double-check that, but I'm pretty sure that would be the case. Okay, okay. Yeah. Um, so the story does seem to be... So again, you mentioned, you know, the, the exploits were so grand, and then you have these characters you're trying to develop within within this yeah. this large stage. Um, what do you... What would you say you focus on, like, thematically? Can you say there's things you focus on in the book, in this graphic novel, um, that you can point out? What I tried to do was develop three characters who perhaps weren't the best at the job. They still had to be pretty good. Mm-hmm. Um, they were chosen to take part in uh, in attacks uh, which only a dozen or perhaps two dozen British aircraft were involved in, so that they would be pretty good. Um, but I wanted to avoid the notion of them being the very best of the best, the ace fighter pilot, the uh, the superstar. I was more interested in what I referred to earlier as uh, as everyman. They're the kind of guys who, perhaps they're not the most motivated, perhaps they're not the most capable, but they're there, and for one reason or another, they go on the mission anyway. Mm-hmm. Um there's what uh, before I've referred to as, as a kind of heroism of endurance there. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wanted to see them as guys who, um, I think early on, Archie, the pilot, is described as flying the way he does everything else, all balls and no brains. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ollie doesn't really take life terribly seriously. He's the observer. And then the gunner, Pops. Uh, I think he, he himself points out that he's been in the Navy almost 10 years. And uh, he really hasn't enjoyed much in the way of promotion or of advancement. So, you know, he can tell that there's there's something not quite right about his own attitude. <laughs> and yet, these three guys are there. They go on the missions. They do the job. Um, they themselves do question what they're doing on occasion. They, they do have a sense of their luck slowly running out, of they themselves getting away with more and more, uh, and wondering how much longer can this last. And yet, uh, they continue to show up. They're in the line. Um, they're, they go on the mission. Um, so I, I wanted that sense, that's a sense of quiet courage, uh, uh, 
shown by ordinary human beings rather than necessarily some sort of far more heroic archetype that we're, we're perhaps used to in war stories. Mm-hmm. Did you find that the pilots, because I guess the description of these planes has been uh, museum pieces before the war, um, were the, the pilots chosen for this, this work, were they generally the, the guys, the B team, um, that was put to work at this, or do you know how that was approached? Not, not really, not really. I mean, these these were, as I say, very capable people. Mm-hmm. It's just that within any group, you're going to get the most motivated individuals, and then you're going to get the ones, that perhaps the more callow, youthful ones who aren't completely certain about what they're doing, for whom uh, life in the military, uh, life as aviators is a bit of a lark, Mm-hmm. Until the bullets start flying, and they said they find out what it's really all about. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's no question that um, th- these these pilots and crews were very capable people. Mm-hmm. Um, they were uh, the, the fact, the simple fact that they were they were able to get at least one torpedo hit uh, against the Bismarck in the Mid Atlantic in pretty grim conditions as the light is failing at the end of the day uh, would suggest that there's a, a, a degree of skill involved uh, or, or on show uh, beyond that of the average aviator. But again, um, you you have your very best, you have your elite, and then you have your guys who, I wouldn't go so far as to say they're there to make up the numbers, far from it, but um, they're perhaps, perhaps they're they're better at trying than they are at actually doing. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to uh, use the term B team sort of pejoratively um, because mm-hmm. I know that, you know, the people who are just kind of supposed to do that secondary duty sometimes come out to be the ones doing the heroic stuff, you know? Sure. I mean, it's, it, this, none of this was secondary duty. This was, uh, this was the Royal Navy's premier strike arm. Mm-hmm. Um, if the story uh, has a point in that regard at all. It's it's not that the crews were second best. It's, it's that the aircraft itself, the swordfish, certainly seemed to be second best hmm. uh, at the beginning of the war. I think I made the point in the afterward that um, the swordfish wasn't taken very seriously at first, but that's because its crews had yet to get down to work. Mm-hmm. Uh, once they took the thing to war, um, it, it actually defied the odds and, uh, in fact, triumphed. Hmm. Now, was it? Uh, did it primarily fly from land bases, or were, how often were they flown from aircraft carriers? Uh, I believe it was mostly a carrier-based aircraft. That's what it was designed for. Mm-hmm. Um, but there, there were plenty of Royal Naval Air Stations around the UK mm-hmm. from which swordfish flew on perhaps shorter range uh, submarine hunting and mine laying mm-hmm. operations. And how slow was the plane? I think, I think it was supposed to be able to do about 120 miles an hour, um, but once you got the man aboard and the torpedo underneath, and you allowed for uh, the wear and tear that the engine and the airframe took, I, I think they were lucky to get it over much over about a hundred. And when you consider that uh, 20 years earlier, the, the very best fighters of the First World War. Uh, had already surpassed that particular speed, you, you get a sense of really what you're talking about with the swordfish performance. Um, the torpedo bombers that uh, the American Navy began World War II with weren't all that great. They got far better aircraft later in the war, but they were still a downside faster and more modern than the swordfish. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one thing I like about this... Um this book is that, you know, when you think about British aviation in World War II, you think, uh, I guess, the Spitfire and I guess mm-hmm. the Hurricane. And, you yeah. know, to learn about this is pretty, pretty cool. Yeah, it's, um, it, I suppose it's one of those unsung hero stories. I mean, I can remember being a kid uh, and reading two or three war comics featuring the Swordfish um, and finding something incongruous about this old canvas skin biplane in amongst all these deadly-looking monoplane fighters and bombers. Mm-hmm. Not that I would have expressed it 
like that at the time, but I think the anachronistic nature of the swordfish was very much played up in those comics. Um, and when you read the when when you read the memoirs um, of of some of the men who flew it, like Charles Lamb, who wrote uh, "To War in a String Bag," uh, you know, they are not unaware of the nature of the aircraft they're flying. They're, they're very pleased with it and proud of it once they get going, hmm. but you you do find them asking questions early in in the aircraft service of what's going to happen if we ever run into German fighters that kind of thing mm-hmm. is it uh, not being British I don't know is it is the string bag or the string bags um, how how much are they celebrated in the UK uh, well in as much as any World War two story is really properly celebrated in the UK mm-hmm. um, they're, let's say they're known within specialist circles. Hmm. Most people who know a bit about military history will know what a fairy swordfish is, and, and they'll be familiar with the Bismarck and Toronto. Hmm. But um, it, in terms of the general public, really not at all. Uh, in recent years, there's been a, a big effort to um, in September to get large numbers of Spitfires and Hurricanes into the air to uh, celebrate the climax of the Battle of Britain. And I think that's raised certainly the Spitfires profile a bit. Uh, with the general public, you, you might be able to make the same argument for the Lancaster bomber. Mm-hmm. But apart from that, no. And I, again, unless you know a little bit about military history or you go to, say, an air show and see one of the very rare swordfish that's still flying, mm. uh, then you're really not going to know. But to be frank with you, I, I think Americans do a, a far better job of uh, commemorating their uh, their World War II experience than the British do. Hmm. Interesting. How, how great were the losses of, of these planes in World War II? Well, um, if we if we look at the three actions that the uh, that feature in 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 the, the book the string bags um, surprisingly light uh, for the first two one of the points that, that that the book makes is that the enemy gunners simply weren't ready for an aircraft that slow mm-hmm. um, anti-aircraft gunners will assume that uh, the aircraft they're shooting at is going to behave in a certain way. They'll, uh, they'll aim ahead of it so that it will fly into their fire. Uh, there's a lot of complicated black magic here to do with um, prediction, geometry, mathematics, and so on. But essentially, it's, it's leading the target. Uh, it's deflection shooting. You shoot where the aircraft is where you think it's going to be, and it flies into your fire. Uh, the swordfish... Had a had a funny habit of defying their expectations because it was so slow, <laughs> and so against the uh, against the Italian fleet at Toronto, uh, and against the German gunners on the Bismarck, the Swordfish fared surprisingly well. Uh, unfortunately, later in the Channel Dash action, uh, up against German fighters. Um, it was rather a different story. Again, that's a bit of a spoiler alert, but let's just say it didn't work out so well for them the third time. Yeah. And um, even with the first two engagements uh, that you focus on, not, you know, not losing planes and pilots is not, it's not a bad thing. That's good. You know, it just, um, it just shows um, how useful they were, Um, but I'm Mm -hmm. sure it was terrifying still. Oh yes, absolutely. I mean, flying into a storm of, tracer and flag with shrapnel flying all over the place and ripping through your little canvas-skinned aircraft. Mm-hmm. Um, it's worth noting that, that a good many swordfish, once they got back to the carrier uh, with their with their crews intact, um, had to be written off and tipped over the side because they were just shredded. I mean, they lasted long enough to make the attack and return their crews safely. And then some of them, at least, would would simply be tipped overboard because they were in such terrible condition. There was no point in attempting to patch them up. There'd be more patches than the aircraft. Well, were they, so they were still manufacturing them at the time where they, they just, I assume. Yes, I, I believe swordfish, 
uh, the manufacture of the aircraft continued not through the whole war, because towards the end of the war they, they were beginning to get decent modern aircraft. Um, the British fleet air arm uh, was lucky to get uh, an American torpedo bomber called the Grumman Avenger, which gradually took over from the Swordfish. Um, but it did last a good long while. Uh, Ferry, the parent company, came up with uh, a replacement for the Swordfish called the Albacore, um, and it frankly failed. Um, and in, I think in at least one instance, there was one swordfish squadron that got rid of its albacores and went back to swordfish. I'm speaking with Garth Ennis, author of the graphic novel The String Bags. You can find him by Googling his name, Garth Ennis, to find his other works. If you like this podcast, please take a moment to rate it on whatever podcast feed you're listening to it on. These ratings go a long way in increasing the popularity of my podcast and I'm grateful for any support you can give me. Please sign up for my newsletter at warscholar.org or militaryhistorypodcast.com. Please post your questions or comments about this podcast or this episode on Facebook at War Scholar and on YouTube at War Scholar 1945. You can also contact me on Twitter at War Scholar and on Instagram at Chris Alvarez War Scholar. If you like science fiction, fantasy, and horror, please listen to my podcast, Full Contact Nerd, located at chrisalvarez.com and fullcontactnerd.com. If you like outer space business, technology, and policy, please listen to my podcast, Spacewalks Money Talks, also located at spacewalksmoneytalks.com. Now back to the podcast. Uh, I also want to ask about, uh, really quickly, the armament. So, um, And also, I, I noted that uh, I think it uses centrometric radar at one point. Yes. Um, the radar, uh, aircraft-borne radar, kind of improves dramatically throughout the war. The sets that the uh, crews are using early on um, are, well, not terribly reliable. It's the same with air-to-air radar. Early British night fighters had a pretty terrible time with the uh, the equipment they were they were given, but that improved quickly um, as the war went on. Um, as for armament, the Swordfish had a little rifle caliber machine gun at the back mm-hmm. uh, for the gunner and one single one firing forward for the pilot to do whatever damage he might. Um, it could carry, obviously, a torpedo mm-hmm. uh, or bombs or flares or mines, depending on which job it was supposed to do. Um, that's where the nickname string bag comes from, the fact that it could carry so many different things. Hmm. Uh, put someone in mind of the kind of string shopping bags that were in use at the time. Oh, okay. And so this uh, slightly derogatory but affectionate nickname was given. Um, later in the war, uh, I believe swordfish were also equipped with rockets, um, four under each wing, which proved quite devastating against surface U-boats and so on. But um, at, at the point our story takes place uh, from 40, 1940 to early 42, we're really just concerned with uh, the torpedo. Okay. And it would carry one torpedo per plane? or One torpedo per plane, yeah. Once, once you got rid of that, that was it. You had to go home. Mm-hmm. And were they able to fly a lot faster once the torpedo was deployed? Uh, a bit faster, yeah, but still nowhere near, uh, nowhere near fast enough to get away from enemy fighters and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, pretty much anything in the sky was faster than a swordfish. Mm-hmm. I guess I was just wondering if if the uh, pilot uh, or if the crew were were just hoping to get you know get it off you know get it out and then and you know head home as quickly as possible once they did their job. Possibly so. I mean, I think he. he each of them was dedicated enough to do the job right. Mm-hmm. Uh, but after that, there's not a lot of point in sticking around, unless, I suppose, uh, you want to make a second attack alongside another aircraft that still has a torpedo to um, to draw enemy fire away from them, mm-hmm. uh, as happened uh, several instances during the Combusters raid. I'm, I'm not sure. If swordfish crews did that, I imagine some did at some point. Mm-hmm. Okay. So let's turn towards the the resources you used for your research. Mm-hmm. Um, I've noted, or I, I 
read it again in a book description that there's a lot of detail in, you know, the illustrations and, and, um, what's shown in the graphic novel. Mm -hmm. Um, how did you, what sort of research did you do for all that? Um, well, when it comes to the detail, it's actually, uh, illustrated, um, that in fact is more of a question for the artist PJ Holden. I, I imagine, you know, he used particular textbooks and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, for myself, it was a, whenever I research a story, it's, it's often a question of fine tuning the knowledge I already have. I mean, I, I have, um, wanted to tell this story for a long time. Uh, as I said earlier, you know, it was it was just its turn to be told. Mm-hmm. But whenever I come to tell a particular war story, I, I draw on my own general knowledge and then I'll use particular books to kind of fine-tune the details. Mm-hmm. Uh, as an example, uh, on this one I referred to a, a book I talked about earlier, uh, Charles Lamb's book, uh, The War in a String Bag. Mm-hmm. Um, he was... Uh, he was a swordfish pilot. He uh, was involved in the Toronto attack. Before that, he'd actually had an aircraft carrier torpedoed out from under him mm. uh, by a U-boat right at the start of World War II. But uh, he came back from that. He uh, he took part in the Toronto attack, a uh, number of other missions around the Mediterranean. Uh, interestingly, he was shot down and captured by the Vichy French and spent some time in a rather wretched prison camp in, I think, Tunisia or Algeria. Mm-hmm. It's a little outside the uh, parameters of the story I told, but it, but it is interesting. It's, it's another one of those lesser-known aspects of the war. Uh, but it's, it's that kind of specialist knowledge that I use to, as I say, fine-tune my own research. Mm-hmm. Now, um, not just for this uh, novel, but the the others, mm-hmm. um, what... what uh, do you, do you generally um, work off your own library, or do you ever get out to museums, archives, uh, any oral history or anything that you listen to? Um, I, I do find a hell of a lot of stuff online. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, of course, museum visits being up close to the aircraft uh, or vehicles or, or whatever artifacts you're talking about uh, is invaluable. I mean, I've been very fortunate in that uh, I've been able to fly in a number of World War II aircraft, uh, uh, which gives you an insight really unmatched by any textbook, any museum visits, to, to actually see how it sounds and feels and looks close up. Uh, I, I had a flight in a Lancaster bomber over Toronto hmm. six or seven years ago, and that was an incomparable experience. Uh, seeing what it's like inside a Lancaster with all four engines roaring mm. at altitude, seeing how difficult it is to move around inside the thing, and then imagine what it would be like a couple of miles higher on oxygen at night. Um, it, it really was, as I say, invaluable. Hmm. That sounds pretty cool. <laughs> and so were you, so the fairy swordfish have, have you been able to fly in that, or were you just able to see it on the ground? Or uh, no, I've, I've seen them on the ground, and in fact, I saw one fly at a British air show some, some years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are a couple of flying swordfish in the UK, and I think there's another one somewhere in North America. It may be Canadian, it may be American-owned, I'm just not sure, mm-hmm. but they are incredibly rare. Uh, being up close to one is an experience, though, uh, when you see you see just how small it is and how flimsy it looks, and then you consider what what it and its crews achieved, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, that's quite an experience. And then just the uh, the temperatures that you feel, how cold it must be um, when you're up, right? Yeah, right in an open cockpit, yeah, wearing only a, a fur-lined flying jacket over your overalls, uh, as opposed to the kind of survival gear that that people would wear nowadays. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I mean, I have been up in. Uh, not necessarily World War II era aircraft, but I have been up in similar biplanes, and you do get a, a strong sense there of the wind in the wires, as the old saying has it. Um, mm-hmm. Open cockpit, wind right in your face if you lean around the windscreen. Uh, seeing the wires and struts that hold the two wings together, um, it doesn't. 
it doesn't look very strong, although once you're up on the thing, you realize that the two wings with all those struts and strings actually do give you do give the airframe a good deal of structural strength. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is, is aviation your favorite part of military history, or is it evenly split? Uh, I, I'd have to say it probably is my my favorite part. It's it's where my interest began. I, I was always um, as a kid, most fascinated by the, uh, the the exploits of the fighter pilots and well, fictional fighter pilots at first. You know, these were war comics, mm. but there there is something about aircraft of that era screaming around the sky with guns blazing that that really does have a lock in, on my imagination that almost uh, no other aspect of the war does. Mm-hmm. When was the first time you got to see uh, uh, an air museum, or do you recall that? Um, you know, uh, when I was a kid, there was a museum just down the road from where I grew up uh, called the, the, it's still there, the Ulster Folk and Transport Museum. Mm-hmm. And it for a while, it had a Spitfire mm-hmm. sitting outside it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can remember seeing that as a little kid, and because it was a post-war aircraft and was painted silver, mm-hmm. um, it bore no resemblance to the, or very little resemblance to the camouflaged aircraft I knew from the comics and the movies. Yeah. Um, but it was a Spitfire, and I suppose it would have been my first experience of being up close to an aircraft like that. Funnily enough, you're talking about the seventies when I'm not even 10, mm. uh, but about 20 years later, I saw that uh, self-esteem Spitfire fly at an air show. Uh, someone had purchased it from the museum, refurbished it, put a new engine in it, um, repainted it and got it in the air. Uh, so it was nice to actually sort of see this thing from my childhood flying above my head. That's cool. Yeah, to imagine how, how long it can sit there and then it can still take to the air and, and perform. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I suppose by that stage, they've had to rebuild quite a lot of it, and you, you do wonder how much of the original structure is actually part of what flies today. Mm-hmm. Certainly, I, I doubt it was the original engine. Right. Um, but yes, essentially, it's, it's that Spitfire there in spirit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the research for, for this um, this work and, and others, which uh, what part of the research has been most enjoyable for you? Well, sometimes... Sometimes it's it's not even research; it's just general reading, um, and that will spark the story. Um, the story goes back to these comics I read as a kid. Um, other times you'll be just doing some general reading, or perhaps you'll be researching another story altogether, uh, and something you run across will give you an idea for something completely new. You'll you'll see a scene. Or it'll be an anecdote. Mm-hmm. Something will set you off down the path to a new story. Uh, you mentioned Max Hastings earlier. Mm-hmm. I, I really do think he's a, a tremendous writer on uh, on World War Two and other subjects. And um, one of his uh, one of the, the excellent uh, World War Two histories he's put out is one that um, uh, it's called. Uh, well, in the U.S., it was released as Inferno. Uh, in the UK, it was called All Hell Let Loose. But it's not quite a social history of World War II, but it's perhaps a history of human experience. He tries to get as many different points of view and experiences uh, as possible. Everyone from, I may be accidentally quoting the blurb on the back of the book here, but everyone from an American general to a Leningrad housewife during the siege from a Japanese soldier to a British general to, you get the idea. Mm-hmm. And it is this incredible amalgamation of human experience. And reading that, like a lot of Max Hastings books, I I almost find something I, I want to write about on every page. <laughs> yeah. And yet there's such limited time. <laughs> yes. Yes. I mean, I, I know, I've said this before, I know I'm going to... Uh, to die with ideas for war stories unused, because uh. after the string bags 
there are so many more I want to tell, so many uh, things I want to get onto. Um, I mean, I'm just looking at my bookshelf now, mm-hmm. and I'm seeing about maybe 10 or a dozen more stories there, uh, and I'm pleased with the vast majority of them. Um, in fact, some of them are, are collected editions, which which might have three or four different ones in each volume, so it, it's a lot more than just a dozen. And yet, I know that um, I've barely scratched the surface. Which the um, I noticed uh, you you revived a war comic. Can you briefly mention that? And... Uh, yeah, sure. I've done that a couple of times. Uh, old British characters, but um, I think the one I. Uh, the one I might have mentioned is Johnny Red, mm. uh, which is one of the very first war comics I read. Um, that appeared in the British title I mentioned earlier, Battle. Mm. It was um, it was the story of a British fighter pilot who's kicked out of the RAF uh, and for reasons best known to the story, makes his way to Russia where he ends up commanding a Russian fighter squadron. Now this, of course, is unlikely to them point of impossibility, but it w- it did provide uh, the writer and artists to give um, to give the the battle readership uh, a pretty good introduction to the war on the Eastern Front, which uh, as kids in the seventies we had really no idea of. Um, we were taught a sort of truncated version of World War Two history in as much as we were taught anything, uh, in which the British and Americans were very much to the fore in terms of the defeat of, of Nazi Germany and Imperial Japan. But what uh, what these guys tried to do, the, the creators of Johnny Red, their names were Tom Tully and Joe Colquhoun, uh, was to give us a portrait of uh, conflict on the Russian front in which it gradually became apparent that really the donkey work of of the defeat of the Nazis had been done, the really hard graft of that of achieving that victory. Uh, and I was always impressed by that. The thought that these British comics writers and artists would want to do this. Uh, yes, they had to do it by unlikely means. They had to choose this uh, very uh, well downright impossible plot where you have a British pilot. And that's how they get our interest because mm-hmm. he's because he's a Brit, right. um, but leading a Russian squadron. But that allows them to tell the story that otherwise simply wouldn't have been told. Um, and it opened up that side of the war, and it gave an understanding of that side of the war to so many kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, in this one particular case, I can tell you, it stayed with me. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's important, even if it's fictionalized. Um, as long as the reader understands I'm reading fiction, but it is giving me useful information and they can always, uh, research more on their own. Well, yeah, that's right. I mean, that's why whenever I can, I include, uh, an afterwork or an introduction, mm-hmm. um, to, to the, uh, war stories I, I write just to tell people, uh, well, fact and fiction mm-hmm. is what I titled it in the string bags, just to tell people. Uh, this is what happened. Uh, this, these are the true aspects of the story you've just read. These are the bits I've made up. These characters didn't exist. These guys did. That kind of thing. I think so long as you're honest about your sources in in that way, uh, it's fair enough. Yeah. And even, you know, academic history needs a reader should always, if they really take it to heart, should double check, you know, with other sources. Which, which oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah, you know, read as in all things, read as widely as possible. Mm-hmm. So for this uh, for this novel, what uh, what was the most surprising thing you discovered? Gosh, um, I think, and this would be back in the mists of time when when I uh, when I first encountered the this swordfish. It would if if it wasn't the actual existence of this ancient creaking biplane in World War II itself, it was the thought that men took it into battle. So rather than being, rather than there being one single aspect that was more surprising than anything else, it, it's actually the very heart of the story uh, that I think is, is the most eye-opening aspect. The fact that men got in these things and flew them uh, into action against uh, 
then modern battleships bristling with firepower, uh, against which they, they really did not expect to survive. Uh, that, to me, is the, the, the part of the story that stops me in my tracks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Was there a question or an historical fact or issue that you had particular difficulty um, getting an answer to that you were trying to write about in the story, or did you feel like you had everything down pat? Um, I I was pretty confident in what I was doing. If Again, if you ask the artist, uh, PJ, if you asked him what it was like to focus on some particular accursed detail of the swordfish's design or perhaps some naval rank badge that was only relevant for three months of the story, <laughs> some gruesome little detail that he had to get right and he found himself screaming with frustration at, at three o'clock in the morning when he was trying to hunt it down online. Uh, if you asked him, yes, you might get a very different answer. So you, you have um, talked about the importance of the story, you know, the, the characters, the humanity of it. But was there any anything else in the story that had an emotional impact on you, either positively or in, negatively? Well, there were many things. I, I do think there is something about the, the Germans who the Stringbag crews flew against in the last section of the story, the Channel Dash, mm-hmm. um, the Germans providing uh, a kind of ultimate praise for those men, uh, acknowledging their bravery, uh, even as even as the two sides were trying to wipe each other out. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's something quite poignant about that, I think, where um, perhaps the final word uh, on the swordfish crews goes to the men who were trying to kill them, to be specific, the German admiral who organized the Channel Dash and the captain of the uh, Scharnhorst, which was one of the capital ships that uh, that made the dash. Um, yes, I was very impressed by that. And that, that's one of those instances where sometimes history, when you're writing fiction like this, sometimes history will give you just the line or lines that you need. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what do you hope, what do you hope this... Um this graphic novel will do? Well, I hope it will, like a lot of the war stories I've read, I hope it will open people's eyes to uh, an aspect of, of history, in this case of World War II, uh, that they hadn't heard of before or hadn't considered. Mm-hmm. Um, it is, as we've said, pretty epic stuff. Um, hopefully, the the characters and the situations in the story will, will carry the, the audience through it enough so that they'll... Um, they'll be able to get a sense of these men and what they did, um, the, the people and the aspects of history that might otherwise simply be lost. Mm-hmm. After oh. all, it's, um, let's see, it's now about 80 years uh, since the events that the uh, the story describes, mm-hmm. uh, and the generation that took part in it are quickly leaving us. Uh, after all, if you were if you were 20... In 1940, mm-hmm. you're a hundred now. Uh, so in just a few years, I think all the World War II veterans will be gone. Yeah. Um, given that the battles they fought gave us the world that we have today, mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to a very grim alternative, uh, I, for one, feel a responsibility to keep as many other stories alive as possible. Oh yeah, definitely, definitely. Um... Sort of a business question: Do um who do comic book stores? Um, I guess they'll carry this, but um, how much do they promote it versus maybe in standard bookstores? Or um, are you able to answer that question or address well, it? Well, that, that's a good question. Um, to to get a precise answer, you might talk to uh, the people at Dead Reckoning. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, certainly, one of the reasons I've gone with them is that. Um, uh, I feel that with the uh, with their backers, the Naval Institute Press, hopefully they'll be able to access uh, an audience beyond that um, uh, of the, the, the beyond that which is reached by a typical comic book store, and we'll be maybe looking more at libraries, museums, regular bookstores. Mm-hmm. Um, for material like this, I think that is very important because comic book stores still do. Uh, cater largely to the superhero 
and says Leonardo, and obviously for a book like this, we have to go beyond that mm-hmm. uh, to, to, to perhaps a more general audience. Hopefully, we'll do that with the string bags. Uh, I can tell you that um, my other war stories have done well enough to survive, mm-hmm. uh, well enough that I'm asked to do more, uh, but you know, we can always do better. It could be, as I say, that uh, the dead reckoning people can give you a bit more detailed, a bit more precise information on exactly that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Did you have any um, trouble getting getting this published, um, or 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 even finished, or did everything go smoothly? Everything went smoothly. Um, it went very well. It, it's been a very good experience actually working uh, with uh, uh, with the team. I- Dead Reckoning, uh, Gary Thompson, who really made the thing happen when he first got in touch with me, mm-hmm. uh, and the rest of his team uh, have been great, which is a very nice experience because this, after all, none of us have worked together before. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was new to all of us. Um, now, I have worked with PJ Holden before, so he and I have a, a kind of kind of shorthand that a writer and artist develop when they... Uh, when they work together, but uh, as a publishing uh, enterprise, this is this is really new for all concerned, uh, and I'm very pleased to say it's gone very smoothly. It's been a very pleasant experience. So, uh, all being well, if the string bags does well enough, I'll be able to do something else for them. Yeah. Well, let me go back in history just a bit. When you pitched your first uh, war comic, you know, mm-hmm. like this, did you have issues getting that accepted, or, or did that go easily? Um, it depends what you mean, really. That The first, I suppose you would say, pure war comic that I did was a revival of the old DC character Enemy Ace. Hmm. Uh, he was the kind of Red Baron-like Fokker triplane pilot of World War One, who I updated to World War Two mm-hmm. and gave him a red Messerschmitt 109 instead of his triplane. And I think because uh, because it was an old DC character and there was a kind of a fondness for it, and DC, much like Marvel, uh, operate on the principle of just putting stuff out there and hoping for the best. Um, and because I was reasonably uh, successful at the time, they were willing to take a chance on it. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't get to do my own original war stories um, for a couple of years after that, uh, and I think I think that might have been a harder sell, but at that point, Preacher was coming to an end, mm-hmm. and it had been a big hit for DC, and they were willing to take really anything I wanted to do, mm-hmm. and if that meant that uh, if that meant World War Two stories, well, they they weren't sure, but they'd give it a go. I mean, try anything once, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I managed to uh, I managed to do quite well out of that. I got two series of that, that war story series, and the rest kind of snowballed from there. Really, um, I've done war stories for a number of publishers now, and I find that um, each has done well enough uh, that I've been able to finish each of the stories concerned. Um, Battlefields, for instance, at Dynamite Entertainment. Mm-hmm. Um, Dreaming Eagles and Out of the Blue for Aftershock, War Stories at DC and then later at Avatar, uh, Sarah, which is one I was very pleased with for a new outfit, TKO. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it seems that there's, there's enough of an audience to get these things off the ground. Is, uh, is String Bags your first one where it's very operationally accurate with fictional characters, or did the ones you mentioned, were they, did they have that same kind of approach as well? Uh, I try to I try to make them as accurate as possible, uh, but the string bags has a little more to do with actual events than than usual. Um, really, just because of the nature of the story, because of the actual specific events, Toronto, Bismarck, Tandak. Uh With other stories, like for instance, uh, the Night Witches, or the Tankies, or perhaps Out of the Blue. I've I've gotten reasonably specific about perhaps campaigns or theaters of war, but 
not so much specific battles or even um, or even particular actions. Mm-hmm. So this one does. This one is a little bit more specific than most. Uh, for instance, in the Night Witches, which is a story about the Russian woman uh, night bomber pilots of mm-hmm. World War Two, mm-hmm. the broad strokes of the story are are, are accurate. Uh, the technical details, but I don't necessarily involve the woman crews in uh, in any actions or battles that that were taken wholesale from real life, the way the events in the string bags were. Mm-hmm. Did you ever have to? Did you ever have arguments with your editors as far as uh, some historical accuracy you wanted to keep in, and the editors wanted to change things for dramatic purposes? Not really, okay. to be honest with you. Uh, when it comes to this kind of material, the editors tend to be sort of learning about the events uh, as they read. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dead Reckoning with Gary Thompson and his team would be the first time I've actually worked with anyone with any kind of specialist knowledge for this kind of material at all. Mm-hmm. Um, generally speaking, at, at uh, publishers like Dynamite, DC... Marvel, TKO, Aftershock that I've mentioned, uh, the editors tend to be learning as they read the stories mm-hmm. as much as anything else. Did the Naval Institute Press, I I assume their editors look through it, did did you have that kind of uh, overview done? or? Well, yes, they were very helpful. I think Gary was able to go into their, uh, their, their quite enormous archives, mm-hmm. uh, in fact, and get PJ in particular a great deal of technical detail on uh, some of the ships that mm-hmm. feature in the story, uh, which might otherwise have been very hard to find. Mm-hmm. Okay, all right. So that that adds a layer of um, establishes a layer of authenticity. You know, yes, working I think with, so. with the press. Okay, cool, cool. That's good to hear. Um, what's your next or or current writing project? Can you discuss that? Um. Right now, in terms of war comics, I have nothing on the slate, as it were. Uh, coming up, I can tell you I want to write about the Battle of Britain. Uh, I want to write about uh, the uh, the British in Burma, the story of the Chindits. Um, I want to do a story about uh, Canadian bomber crews towards the end of World War Two. Uh, in the Royal Canadian Air Force uh, over Germany. Um, and there are other ideas that are, are a little bit further off, but those are the ones that I'm, I'm most looking forward to starting sometime in the next year or so. Mm-hmm. And I did, so I was going to ask if you've done, if you thought about stories uh, with Axis characters, and I guess you did mention that one Red Baron-type character you did. Yeah, uh, that's as I said, that's an old DC character. I have written a few. Um, I wrote I wrote a story called uh, "The Last German Winter," which was uh, about a German tank crew who lose their tank and end up escorting um, a little German family uh, through Soviet-held territory towards the end of uh, the end of World War Two, and this little family. Uh, are very grateful to their saviors, but they start to realize that these men have uh, something of a dark secret of their own. Mm. Um, uh, I wrote a story called The Tankies. One uh, entry in that particular uh, story involved uh, a British tank crew uh, hunting down and being hunted by a German tank crew. a sort of hunter becomes the hunted kind of story, and the two sides got equal time there. Mm-hmm. Um, I do try to keep things fairly diverse. Uh, I've written stories about uh, American characters. I did one about uh, the B-51 pilots who escorted B-29s from Iwo Jima mm-hmm. uh, to attack uh, Tokyo. Um, I did one about B-17s over Germany. It's really characters. I did one about uh, tank warfare during the Yom Kippur War. Uh, and of course the Russians with uh, with the Night Witches and uh, Sarah. Sarah's a story about uh, Russian woman snipers during the Siege of Leningrad. That said, I do tend to find myself coming back to the British more often than not. That's a reflection of the war comics I read as a kid, which were 
usually from a British perspective. And also just for me, being an expat Brit, them being the home team. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. That said, I do, as I say, try to move around a lot. Um, do try to tell as many different stories as I can. With the string bags, uh, as I say, I'm trying to shine a light on an area of World War II that um, a lot of people may not know about. Um, and that, more than anything else, is what that particular tendency is what is what guides me. Okay. Uh, where can people find you on, on the web? Do you have a web page, social media, that sort of thing? Uh, I do not, and I am not on social media at all. Okay. <laughs> but uh, you can find all my you can find all my work on Amazon, mm-hmm. uh, of course, and the various publishers I've mentioned, like Marvel, mm-hmm. DC, Dynamite, Avatar, Aftershock. Uh, they will, uh, they all carry my war stories, and you will be able to find them on their particular pages. And I'll spell just for listeners who might not be familiar with you. I'll just spell your name quickly for them if they want to Google you. Um, oh sure, G A R T H E N N I S. Right. Well, that's all the questions I have. Do you have any any final thoughts or words? Oh gosh, just that, uh, just that. I hope, uh, I hope people will give the string bags a try, and uh, and I hope they'll find it entertaining and informing. Um, there's plenty more where that came from. Yeah, I, I that is, of course, the kind of question where I immediately dry up as soon as I hear it. <laughs> no, no, I, I definitely encourage people um, to look into reading this. It's like you say, it's I think it's a story not a lot of people are familiar with, and I think they'd get a lot out of it. Um, and the artwork, the artwork um, for what I see on the cover looks great, so that's definitely a plus as well. Um, all right, well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. You can find more podcasts like this on your favorite podcast feed under the title Military History Inside Out. That includes Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify. One great way to support me is to rate my podcasts, either good or bad. You can find more great military history information at warscholar.org, on YouTube at warscholar1945, on Facebook at warscholar, on Instagram at Chris Alvarez Warscholar and on Twitter at WarScholar. Please support me by following me on those sites and liking my videos. If you like to read, don't forget to sign up for my weekly newsletter where I recommend newly published books. The subscription box is on my webpage. Thank you.